Hey, this is Jordan Gosporé, host of the Hazard and Jay podcast. I'm here to wish you a happy Earth Day, and if you're looking for a way to celebrate, you came to the right place. On this bonus episode of Hazard and Jay, the best of the show's first season. Enjoy. It formed at night, when they were asleep, creeping into their homes unseen. For those who were still awake, the view outside their windows was almost ethereal, a soft glow like a flame from a candle. This happened for about an hour and a half a few nights a week, for nearly two years. Daylight erased the orange fog that enveloped the small community of Pedricktown, New Jersey, night after night. But even though residents could no longer see the fog, the proof of its existence remained. There were unexplained headaches and pinholes in the aluminum siding of their homes, as if the fog had gotten hungry. It was like something out of a Stephen King novel, except the fog's origins weren't supernatural. It came from the smokestacks of the NL Industries plant. In 1976, Danielle Flood was a young reporter freelancing for the New York Times. A cab dropped her off in Pedricktown one morning to investigate the orange fog. I'm not sure that I remember seeing anything over two stories. I think it was all one stories or small houses around. It looked like the houses were built and then somebody came and put this factory next to them. And there was a big dump next to the factory with, I guess, about 500 car batteries dumped there. At the time the NL Industries plant recovered lead from used car batteries. They did this by draining the batteries of sulfuric acid and then breaking them on the ground. I talked to this one guy. He must have been retired or something. He was kind of old and he was really upset. And I asked him what it was like to live next to, across the street from this factory um, that was reclaiming lead from car batteries. So he said that he was not happy at all. And he showed me his car, the hood of his car. The paint had been eaten away. A former NL Industries employee told Danielle for her article that the plant stored the car batteries waiting to be recycled in a dump behind the building. When it rained on the batteries, the former employee told her that lead and sulfuric acid could leak into the ground. And that's a big problem. The Cape May Aquifer lies under the site, just one and a half miles from the Delaware River. Just to be clear, nearby wells never drew from this aquifer. Instead, they tapped into deeper pockets of water. Today, even though the plant no longer exists, the groundwater remains contaminated with lead and cadmium, toxic metals that can cause learning problems in children. Saltwater is also creeping inland as climate change raises sea levels and amplifies storm surges and flooding. Across South Jersey, that slow trickle of saltwater is killing forests, threatening farmland, and imperiling drinking water supplies. So what happens if saltwater migrates from the ocean to the groundwater underneath the NL industry site? It might not be a bad thing. In fact, the saltwater could help lock the pollution in place rather than spreading it. Now, remember the creeping saltwater I mentioned earlier? It's technically called saltwater intrusion, 
and it's causing headaches for some around South Jersey. See, New Jersey is experiencing sea level rise about twice as fast as the global average. And one of the effects of that is the spread of saltwater underground in coastal areas, where it displaces the existing freshwater. Large stands of coastal forests along Delaware Bay are dying off because the tree roots can't handle saltier water. The same issue is threatening to make some farmland fallow in Cumberland County, which is the poorest county in the state. And in Cape May, the main source of drinking water is an aquifer that is slowly becoming saltier. City officials there may have to spend more than $30 million building a new desalination plant to keep clean water flowing in the future. Much is still not fully understood about saltwater intrusion in South Jersey, including how fast it's happening and how far it's spreading. State and federal scientists are working on studies now to answer those questions, but that's a years-long process. So what does this saltwater intrusion mean for Pedricktown? Well, if saltwater does actually make its way up to the NL Industries site, it might actually be helpful because it would raise the groundwater's pH level. That's a good thing because we want the site's groundwater to be less acidic so those toxic metals don't dissolve into the water. Dib Sarkar, a professor at Stevens Institute of Technology in the School of Engineering and Science, says raising the pH of the site's groundwater was a good move on the EPA's part. They didn't go with pump and treat and actually took a pretty bold step of like increasing the pH. So I thought that that was pretty cool of EPA. Typically, they, they are very risk averse. And they would have like, again, kept on pumping and treating until the time I, at least I was dead and the site will still will <laughs> be not remediated. Dibs teaches a course on environmental management that partly deals with Superfund sites. And he's an expert on lead, which is good for us because the NL Industries site, remember, removed lead from old car batteries. I'm no scientist, so I asked Dibs to explain how changing the groundwater's pH actually works. Raising pH is not that easy. Yeah? Metals like uh, cadmium and lead, like uh, they are getting adsorbed on the aquifer materials and soils. Okay, Cadmium and lead, they actually adsorb specifically. That means by forming covalent bonds. Okay. So what is happening there is like what was there, like dissolved cadmium, dissolved lead in water, happy because again, it was acidic. Like again, there was nothing to hold them. Now they are getting adsorbed on the aquifer materials. Okay. So they are aquifer materials are effectively working as filter materials now. So this is, this is basically what's happening in the system. It started as a campfire and grew into the largest wildfire New Jersey's seen in more than a decade. Firefighters in South Jersey are still battling a massive wildfire that broke out Sunday in Wharton State Forest. The New Jersey Forest Fire Service says it's finally gotten a handle on the Mullica River fire that started burning Sunday. The blaze, called the Mullica River Fire, burned 15,000 acres in Wharton State Forest this past June. From the sky, it looked like lit matches blowing in the wind, casting a yellow haze over most of South Jersey. There were no injuries, but several campgrounds and farms were threatened. Fires in the Pinelands generally don't cause casualties, but property loss can amount to millions of dollars from each fire, especially if homes or structures are damaged. 
Wildfires aren't new in the state, but climate change is changing the intensity, duration, and when they occur. Within the southern reaches of the pines, the EPA is trying to work around those risks as they try to clean up a toxic landfill nearby. But all it could take is a spark to harm their efforts. This environment has shaped industry, culture, and in these parts, legend. Long ago, a woman named Mrs. Leeds was in labor with her 13th child. She cried out in agony, oh, let this one be the devil. Her wish came true. The child released a horrifying screech, unfurled its wings and flew out of the house through the chimney. That night, the Jersey Devil was born. Or so the story goes. Back in the Pinelands of the 21st century, the only demonic thing I spotted was what appeared to be a Snuggie someone discarded with broken TVs and other trash along the side of the road. This part of the Pinelands isn't a landfill like the Immel Superfund site was, despite garage sale-style illegal dumping. But Mike says the prescribed burning going on here will help similar Superfund sites that are contaminated with heavy metals. Some species of plants can actually bring up heavy metals that were otherwise in the soil, but were relatively immobile, not going anywhere. Some early woody colonizers of heavily disturbed areas will naturally want to start seeding in in certain types of scenarios and start growing. And they can take up these heavy metals and then they'll get into their foliage and into their wood. And as the plant loses parts, naturally leaves and twigs and things, it's starting to bring heavy metals up back into the system on the top where then they can run off with rain or blow around in dust. And so one strategy that's been proposed is to actually use some prescribed fire in Superfund sites like that to actually control the species that would start moving uh, the contamination around. And so the goal for some places might not be to restore it back to a forest because that might be counterproductive for the hazardous part. And so maybe maintaining it as a grassland or something like that with species of plants that aren't going to move the contamination around but still provide ecological opportunity for wildlife and recreation can be good. The smell of mothballs mysteriously wafted through much of Edgewater, New Jersey in 2017. The smell caused some people to have headaches, burning eyes, and nausea. This went on for months until residents discovered the source of the odor, the Quanta Superfund site, which sits just feet away from the Hudson River. And there was a reason it smelled like mothballs. Construction at the Quanta site had released naphthalene, a hazardous air pollutant, and the main ingredient in, you guessed it, mothballs. But with climate change increasing storm surge flooding in New Jersey, the smell may be the least of this community's worries. This is Hazard, a limited series about the impacts of climate change on Superfund sites here in New Jersey. I'm Jordan Gospore, an investigative journalist from Texas. I recently went back to my home state of Texas and visited Houston and some of the towns nearby. This area is oil country, and the smells prove it. Driving around with the windows rolled down was a bad idea. First it smelled like rotting eggs, then weirdly like cotton candy, 
and then back to rotting eggs. I've heard some people say these are the smells of money. I say they're the smells of sickness and despair. Most substances that cause foul smells outdoors aren't at levels that can harm people's health. This was the case for the smells in Edgewater. EPA officials said as much back in 2018, when contractors were out there digging around in the soil of the Quanta site. They were trying to prevent coal tar and other oil byproducts from migrating into the Hudson River and nearby properties. You know, just because you smell a garbage truck passing by doesn't necessarily mean that it's harmful to you. It just means that it smells bad. That's Michelle Linga, an attorney for the NYNJ Baykeeper. They're the group that advocates for cleaning up the region's waterways. And in Edgewater, that means keeping an eye on the Quanta site. The residents around were having issues with smell. That sort of like mothball-y kind of smell that comes from the remnants of what was here. And smell is a nuisance on its own, right? Like you can't open your windows, you can't really enjoy a breezy day if it smells so bad that it makes you ill. And they determined that it wasn't anything that is physically harmful, just an odor. But the odor in and of itself is an issue too. To control the smells, the EPA and contractors working at the Quanta site put up tents while they capped the toxic material in concrete to prevent it from spreading. But the site's contaminated sediment in the Hudson River hasn't been cleaned up yet. And there's a risk that those toxic chemicals will spread from increases in storm surges caused by major hurricanes. The site continues to pollute the Hudson River, so much so that the fish in the water are unsafe to eat. On top of that, there are ongoing issues at the site with stormwater runoff. With all that pavement nearby, there's no way for the water from rain and snow to soak into the ground. So it just runs off into the Hudson River, carrying with it the oil that leaks from cars and other pollutants. The area surrounding the site is densely packed with condos, apartments, and businesses, built on what had been an industrial hub dating back more than a century. I took the bus from Manhattan to Edgewater and met up with Tina Masika in her condo near the Quanta site. Tina says she knew about the Superfund site before she moved in, but wasn't expecting it to smell so bad. It was like mothballs, like an oily mothball smell. It was going on for months and we were all complaining. EPA officials said they do not anticipate any long-term health effects from the naphthalene vapors. Tina's condo, the Dunkin' Donuts I went to after our meeting, the parking garage, they're all built on top of the toxic legacy of New Jersey's industrial history. Starting in the late 1800s, the Qantas site was home to various companies that manufactured roofing and paving materials, produced sulfuric acid, stored and recycled waste oil, and processed coal tar, a thick black liquid that occurs when coal is burned at very high temperatures. Products made from coal tar are used to treat a variety of skin conditions today and as a waterproofing material for roofs. But some of the chemicals in coal tar are known to be probable human carcinogens. For decades, Allied Chemical Corporation, which would become Honeywell International, operated a coal tar distillation plant on the site. The company sold the property in the 1970s and Quanta Resources started using the site to store and recycle waste oil. In 1981, the New Jersey Department of Environmental Protection shut down the company because of high levels of PCBs found in the stored waste oil. 
Their investigation found storage tanks with a capacity of more than 9 million gallons of oil, tar, asphalt, sludge, and other known and unknown liquids. Some of these tanks had overflowed with rainwater. Others had collapsed and spilled. Under Quanta's management, oil leaked constantly into the Hudson River and contaminated the soil. Over the years, the state DEP removed the storage tanks they could find and started cleaning up the site. But the damage had already been done. The site languished for years until the EPA took it over and designated it a Superfund site in 2002. By then, Edgewater had transformed from an industrial hub into a wealthy bedroom community. So you have a lot of people living right next to a Superfund site, probably more so than in many other Superfund sites, not only in New Jersey, but across the nation. That's Scott Fallon, a senior reporter with the Bergen Record who covers the environment. You know, you think of a Superfund site, you think of a factory or a chemical plant, you know, that was built far away from where people live. That's not the case. People are right on top of it. You know, these are very densely populated places. These homes are right up against a Superfund site. There's very little boundary between someone's bedroom and the pollution. EPA officials said living or working near a Superfund site does not necessarily pose a risk to people's health. In the case of the Quanta site, while there is contamination in the groundwater, the EPA said that's not a source of drinking water and that residents aren't coming into contact with it. Found in the groundwater, surface water, and soil of the Quanta site are large quantities of toxic chemicals, like arsenic and benzene. And like most of the Superfund sites covered on this podcast, the only way most people would know the area is toxic is by reading the EPA signs on the chain link fence that surrounds the site. In 2020, the state of New Jersey sued Honeywell, which inherited the cleanup liability for the site for its role in destroying wetlands and polluting the area. Two years later, that case is still ongoing. By the following year, the EPA reported that Honeywell had cleaned up 90% of the contaminated soil and groundwater. Many, many years ago, the cleanup began. Here's Michelle, talking with me about Quanta's cleanup history, right by the site itself. This has kind of been one of those sites where everything is kind of going the way it should be for the most part, but there hasn't really been a lot of need for sort of intervention. As for the pollution seeping into the Hudson River, cleanup is still years away. The EPA said it doesn't expect to finalize a plan for that work until the fall of 2023. I've been to the Quanta site twice now, and each time I've taken advantage of the good weather and walked along the Jersey side of the Hudson River, looking out at the Manhattan skyline. I definitely see the appeal of living near this Superfund site. It's also really close to bus stops and the ferry to New York City. But I can't quite get over what I saw when I looked at the water near Tina's home. Patches of oily sheens floating on the surface of the Hudson River. Michelle says a few years ago, the EPA put up barriers in the water, similar to the ones in a pool, to control the spread of oil. The oil tends to sort of float at the surface, so this just prevents it from flowing out into the main stem of the river, which would then carry it down tide. So this kind of just keeps it here until somebody can come and basically just sort of scoop it out, which is good. I mean, this is the sort of thing that they use for just general like oil spill type response. 
it just contains. It doesn't, you know, remove it or anything like that. It just, it just holds it in. Drip. 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 Back in the early 70s, chemical waste leached from the bottom of Price Landfill, through the sandy soil underneath, and into the personal wells of residents in the small town of Pleasantville. Traces of benzene, thallium, and arsenic creeped closer and closer to the well field that supplied drinking water to nearby Atlantic City, before contaminating a segment of the well field a mile away from the site. This is how an Atlantic County health official described the problem back in 1981. It's clear that a large quantity of chemicals is in the ground and is moving in the direction of the Atlantic City well field, and this is certainly uh, extreme cause for concern. This contamination was so bad that even decades later, former New Jersey governor, the late Jim Florio, cited it as one of the worst of the worst. This is how he described the site to me in an interview before he died. Price's Pit, which is uh, down in Atlantic City, there was a plume of pollution that was headed towards the aquifer. And if we got to the aquifer, you'd have bad water for the half of South Jersey. Atlantic City had little choice but to abandon its wells in favor of a new field site. Many residents of the unincorporated communities near Price Landfill were not hooked up to any municipal water system. Instead, they relied on individual private wells. Did you drink it and it gives you pain in the stomach? Yeah, right here. Really? Have you been to the doctor? No. It only happens when I drink the water. At the time, residents of nearby Egg Harbor Township flew white flags three days a week to signal their need to have water delivered. Each household received 15 gallons of water each delivery day. This event may have happened in the 1980s, but the site still leaves a bad taste in the mouths of some locals. Price Landfill, affectionately known as Price's Pit, was one of the first designated Superfund sites in the country. It's taken decades to clean up the 26-acre site, as lawsuits wound their way through the courts and a tangle of federal and state agencies worked out a permanent fix to the toxic stew. Price Landfill was started by Charles Price as a sand and gravel mining operation in 1960, before it became a commercial solid waste landfill in 1971. Common practice at landfills in the 1970s was to dump chemicals on top of the trash because the trash would act as a filter. The trash, of course, didn't filter anything. Chemical waste was openly poured from an open spigot on tank trucks, and drums were buried in shallow pits underneath the trash. Some of these drums are reported to have been punctured. Liquid waste from the Atlantic City Electric Company and at least 36 other companies was disposed on the site for eight years. By the time the landfill closed, the EPA determined that nine million gallons of toxic waste had been dumped. Yes, I said nine million gallons. The damage had been done, and according to court documents, Charles Price knew about it all along. He worked at the site from 1969 until it closed in 1976, supervising other workers and directing them to dispose of the waste that contaminated the groundwater, soil, and nearby creeks. Decades after Atlantic City avoided the crisis of poisoned drinking water from the Price's pit pollution, 
the city now faces a more existential threat, rapid sea level rise. The ocean and bays surrounding Atlantic City are creeping up nearly twice as fast as the global average. These days, highways leading into town regularly flood, as do many of the low-lying neighborhoods. By 2050, federal scientists predict Atlantic City will face up to 110 days of sunny day flooding each year. Slowing sea level rise means stopping climate change, and the key to that is to stop the burning of fossil fuels. In this way, Price's Pit may be a bright spot in the Superfund program. Today, Price Landfill is an innocuous grassy field with a fence around it. It looks like any other Superfund site, except for the hundreds of solar panels. Price's Pit has found new life as a solar farm, generating some of the carbon-free electricity that climate experts say we so desperately need. This is part of a trend to reuse former toxic sites. Perry says the land isn't suitable for much else. There's a, you know, kind of the greater good benefit where you're using renewable energy to put into the, you know, to the energy grid. There's beneficial reuse to the landfill, you know. We wouldn't be building houses out there, but in the context of what type of beneficial use is available, I mean, from an economic standpoint, this is more beneficial than if it were just a walking trail, which they do at some landfills. You're limited in what you can do once they're cleaned up in the sense that they're, you know, capped and contained. So, you know, this works all the way around, really, and it doesn't impede anything we're trying to do. For fundamental and deeply rooted psychological reasons, as well as more mundane, utilitarian considerations, it is characteristic of man to bury that which he fears and wishes to rid himself of. In the past, this ingrained pattern of behavior has generally proven harmless and, indeed, has often left man to restore to the earth the substances he had removed from it. In today's industrialized society, however, the routine practice of burying highly toxic chemical waste has resulted in serious threats to the environment and to public health. That was part of the case opinion in 1981 from Stanley Brotman, a former federal judge in New Jersey. He was talking about the Prices, a family who knowingly allowed toxic chemicals to be dumped near an aquifer on their landfill in Pleasantville, New Jersey. Well, the dirt on the Prices had been repeatedly dug up, and for decades, it seemed like the scars would never fade. But Prices Pit, referred to as the grandfather of Superfund sites, was not only turned into a musical, I kid you not, but has gotten a makeover as a renewable energy facility that could actually help fight climate change. Thanks for listening. And if you like what you heard, the Hazard and J team will be back with the second season this fall. We'll be taking a look at PFAS, a group of toxic substances known as forever chemicals that are the next generation of pollution in New Jersey and around the country. We're going to explore what these chemicals are, what they do, and what we can do about them. And of course, we'll look at how climate change impacts all of it. Hazard is a space not just for learning about Superfund sites, but for engaging our communities in conversation around the cleanup of these toxic places. Do you have questions about Superfund sites in New Jersey? Do you live near one? If so, I want to hear from you. Send me an email at hazard at mynjpbs.org 
or leave me a voice memo at 212-560-8081. We may play your comments in a future episode. Hazard and Jay is an NJ Spotlight News production. The show is written, edited, and hosted by me, Jordan Gosporé. Jamie Kraft is the executive producer with NJ Spotlight News. Our executive in charge of production is Joe Lee. Michael Saul Warren is our producer. Chloe Matisse is our production manager. Our sound designer and engineer is Mark Bush. Music for Hazard and Jay was composed by Nick Pennington. Artwork by Matthew Fleming. Support for Hazard and Jay is provided by Peril and Promise, a public media reporting initiative covering the human stories of climate change and its solutions, with major funding provided by Dr. P. Roy Vagelos and Diana T. Vagelos. You can learn more at pbs.org forward slash Peril and Promise.